Okay, so this podcast is going to be for exam two review for Pathopharm 2. So starting off with module six, the respiratory system. Objective one, differentiate between ventilation, perfusion, and diffusion. So ventilation is going to be the actual movement of the air between the atmosphere and the respiratory portion of the lungs. Perfusion is the flow of blood through the lungs, and diffusion is the transfer of gases between the air-filled spaces in the lungs and the blood. Describe the mechanics of breathing. So during inspiration, the diaphragm and intercostal muscles would contract, so this would increase the size of the thoracic cavity in the lungs. This would then, this excess space, would create negative pressure, so that would pull air in as it went down the pressure gradient. On expiration, these muscles would relax, the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles relax, and this decreases the size of the lung space, increasing the pressure to push that air out down the concentration pressure gradient. Explain compliance and resistance. So compliance is how easily lungs can be inflated. So it depends on elastin. Those are fibers that are easily stretched. Collagen are fibers that resist stretching. Water content and surface tension. So when you have low lung volume, you're going to have inward surface tension, meaning in those alveoli, the water particles are gonna be interacting to try to close the alveoli and pull in. So that's in low lung volume. In high lung volume, you're going to have outward surface tension. Those water particles on the walls are going to be pulled by bulk water outside the alveoli. A couple of conditions related to compliance, we have emphysema. In emphysema, the proteases break down elastic components of the walls, so you see a loss of recoil and there would be difficulty deflating the lungs, so it would be increased stretch, so a lot of air is remaining in the lungs. We also have fibrosis. In fibrosis, elastin is replaced by fibrotic scar tissue, which causes a loss of stretch, loss of compliance, and the lungs are difficult to inflate. On the other hand, resistance is going to be the resistance of that lung tissue to stretching. So explain the function of a type 2 alveolar cell. These cells, type 2 alveolar epithelial cells, are the cells that secrete surfactant. Surfactant has a huge impact on surface tension. So as we know, the surface tension in alveoli causes the water molecules to attract to each other, which creates a tendency towards recoil or collapse of those alveoli, which is known as atelectasis. Surfactant is secreted by those type 2 alveolar cells, and it contains hydrophobic tails that disrupt that attraction between water molecules to decrease surface tension and keep alveoli open. Overall, it increases lung compliance by decreasing the force that it would take to expand the alveoli. Relevant here is Laplace, I don't know how to say it, Laplace's law. Um, That says that the pressure required to keep the alveoli open equals two surface tension over the radius. So pressure required to keep alveoli open equals two times the surface tension over the radius. This means that a large radius would decrease the pressure required to keep the alveoli open while a smaller radius increases pressure. So this means that it's easier to collapse small alveoli than larger alveoli. Given that difference in pressure, air preferentially enters the larger alveolus first since it has lower pressure to overcome. Thus, the large alveoli have a tendency to become overdistended while small alveoli tend to collapse. Surfactant decreases this difference in surface tension between large and small alveoli to allow them to have equal pressure, which increases the evenness of the distribution and overall increases lung compliance. Discuss minute ventilation. Um, Minute ventilation is the amount of air exchanged in one minute, usually 6,000 milliliters or 6 liters. To find the minute volume, it would be the tidal volume times the respiratory rate. 
Tidal volume itself is the amount of air inhaled and exhaled with, with each breath, which is usually about 500 milliliters. So we want to think of this as minute volume equals tidal volume times respiratory rate. Consider an algebraic equation between tidal volume and respiratory rate. In fibrotic lungs, they'll have a lower tidal volume since they have less compliance, so you'd have to increase the respiratory rate to maintain this minute volume. In COPD, you have inflated lungs, so you would need to take deeper breaths with a lower respiratory rate for the same minute volume. Differentiate between anatomic and physiologic dead space. Dead space is when you have ventilation without perfusion. Anatomic dead space is normal. It's when air doesn't reach the level of gas exchange. So think of air in the trachea or the bronchi. That's about 30% of tidal volume. We also have physiologic dead space, which is abnormal. So this is when air is reaching the alveolus, but exchange doesn't take place due to a lack of perfusion. So this could be a pulmonary embolus blocking blood flow, cardiovascular shock, or a sepsis where the heart just isn't able to perfuse the lungs very well. So once again, dead space is ventilation without perfusion. Differentiate between anatomic and physiologic shunting. Shunting is perfusion without ventilation. So in anatomic shunting, blood is moving from the venous side to the arterial side without going through the lungs. And this is most commonly caused by congenital heart defects that allow the unoxygenated blood to continue into systemic circulation without passing through the lungs. So you could think of atrioventricular defects. We also have physiologic shunting in which air enters the lungs but gas exchange is not taking place. This would be caused by lung diseases like edema, mucus plugging, excessive secretions, and anything that would be blocking the alveolus. So anything preventing ventilation. So once again, shunting is perfusion without ventilation. Differentiate between physiologic, dead, physiologic shunting and dead space. Physiologic shunting is when the air enters lungs, but the venous blood is not being oxygenated. So that's perfusion without ventilation caused by lung diseases that prevent gas exchange. Dead space is ventilation without perfusion, so the air is ventilating and reaching the alveolus fine, but something is blocking that perfusion. Describe factors that affect perfusion. So perfusion occurs in three zones. In zone one, we have the apices, and they receive minimal perfusion, typically. In zone two, we have the middle lobe, the central lung area, and those receive intermittent perfusion. And in zone three, we have the bases that receive continuous perfusion. There are a few factors that affect perfusion. Position is one of them. When you're sitting upright, you're decreasing the perfusion to the apices or zone one, since your body is having to fight against gravity to get blood up there. Similarly, conversely, when you're supine, you're decreasing the blood flow to the anterior lungs, since once again, your body would be having to work harder to get it past gravity and work up there. Hemodynamics affects it. When you have increased blood pressure and increased blood volume, you're gonna have increased flow to the lungs. Similarly, when you have decreased blood pressure and decreased blood volume, you have decreased flow to the lungs. Exercise also increases perfusion since it would be increasing heart rate and output. Hypoxia, on the other hand, causes pulmonary vasoconstriction. So hypoxia decreases perfusion. Differentiate between distension and recruitment. Distension occurs when vessels that are already open distend further to increase perfusion. Recruitment is when vessels that are closed will open to increase perfusion. So both are ways that the body increases perfusion, but we have distension, so vessels are opening wider, and recruitment, new vessels are opening. Explain the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve and factors that cause a shift to the left and right. So the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve represents the relationship between the oxygen dissolved in the plasma versus the oxygen bound to hemoglobin. 
It also reflects affinity, which is the capacity of hemoglobin to bind with oxygen. When you have a high affinity, the hemoglobin binds easily with oxygen. When you have a low affinity, hemoglobin easily releases oxygen. So when you see a curve to the right on the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, this means there is a decreased affinity, so oxygen is being released from the hemoglobin into tissues. This is called the Bohr effect. It's caused by acidosis, or decreased pH, also known as increased CO2, or also increased temperature. Also, we have the curve to the left, which is an increased affinity. So oxygen would be binding more easily to hemoglobin. This is known as the Haldane effect. It can be caused by alkalosis, aka increased pH and decreased CO2, or decreased temperature. Describe the function of carbonic anhydrase. Carbonic anhydrase allows the transport of CO2 in the blood via buffer systems as bicarb. So on one side we have CO2 and O2. They um, can be converted into carbonic anhydrase, which can then be converted into bicarb and hydrogen ions or protons. Describe how central and peripheral chemoreceptors adjust respiratory rate. So some context, so we know we have the neural control of respiration, so the respiratory center is found in the medulla and the pons. We have the dorsal group, which controls inspiration via the phrenic nerve that contracts the diaphragm. We also have the ventral group, which controls inspiration and expiration via spinal, spinal motor neurons that contract intercostal muscles and abdominal muscles. And it's important to note that voluntary breathing can always override involuntary breathing. So knowing that, we have our central chemoreceptors, which are found in the medulla and the pons. These measure the pH in the cerebral spinal fluid, so they're responding to carbon dioxide levels by proxy. And the normal level there is 3.5 to 4, or 35 to 45, excuse me. Um, you would see increased respiration in acidosis or decreased pH with an increased CO2. The response to acidosis lasts about one minute before stopping, and it would be negated by chronic elevated CO2 levels since it would become desensitized. This occurs commonly in COPD. You also have peripheral chemoreceptors, which are found in the carotid and aortic bodies. These measure the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood, so they're stimulated by hypoxia. So they would increase the respiratory levels when partial pressure of oxygen is below 60 millimeters of mercury. Differentiate between upper respiratory infections and allergic rhinitis. Upper respiratory infections are usually a response to a pathogen in the nasal cavity, larynx, and pharynx. It's caused by a virus typically, but could also be bacteria, fungal, etc. So one example is the common cold. It's a viral upper respiratory infection caused by a number of possible viruses. It's transmitted mostly by direct contact with the nasal mucosa and the conjunctiva, but also could be via droplet with coughing and sneezing. The clinical manifestations, it typically starts with dryness and stuffiness, and you'll also see excessive production of clear nasal secretions and tearing, and treatment for that would just be symptomatic. On the other hand, we have allergic rhinitis, which is a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction of the upper airway, lower airway, and eyes. In allergic rhinitis, the allergens bind to immunoglobulin E, IgE, on mast cells, causing degranulation and release of histamines, leukotrienes, and prostaglandins. The signs and symptoms here would be sneezing, rhinorrhea, puritis, and nasal congestion. 
Some examples of this could be hay fever, which are seasonal outdoor allergies. We also have perennial allergic rhinitis, which is a non-seasonal indoor allergy. Differentiate between rhinitis and sinusitis. Rhinitis is inflammation of the nasal mucosa, while sinusitis is the inflammation of the paranasal sinuses. We also have rhinosinusitis, which could be acute, which would last five to seven days through four weeks. The signs and symptoms would include facial pain, headache, purulent nasal drainage, decreased sense of smell and fever. Could be subacute, lasting four weeks to 12 weeks, or chronic, lasting longer than 12 weeks. Describe the mechanisms of action of antitussive medications. So coughing is a highly complex reflex involving the central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, and respiratory muscles. There are a number of medications, but none are particularly effective. We have opioids, which could be codeine slash hydrocodone. It's highly effective in small doses, but of course there's a major concern for dependence and addiction. We also have non-opioid dextromethorphan, dextromethorphan abbreviated DM. This is highly effective. It has an analgesic action that can also increase opioid action, allowing you to give smaller doses of opioids. We also have expectorants. Um, guaifenesin is the drug for this class, and it's a very effective in high doses, and expectorants increase the flow of respiratory secretions to make excretion easier. Finally, we have mucolytics, which react directly with the mucus to thin secretions to make it easier to clear them. Our best example here is acetylcysteine. It's important to remember with this drug, it has a very high sulfur content, so when it's given to be a nebulizer, it has a very distinctive odor. Differentiate between typical and atypical pneumonia. Typical pneumonia is going to be bacterial, caused, it would be pneumococcal, streptococcal, could also be caused by haemophilus, bacteria, or staph aureus. The signs and symptoms typically include fever, chills, productive cough, and pleuritic chest pain. On physical assessment, you would find crackles, dullness to percussion, agophony, and increased fremitus. And on chest x-rays, you would see alveolar infiltration. So generally, in typical pneumonia, the alveoli are filled with fluid and products of the inflammatory process. So ventilation, perfusion, and diffusion are going to be limited, and you will have those characteristic respiratory symptoms. It's also a low bar pneumonia, meaning that it would only affect one specific lobe of the lung. So if you're looking at that x-ray, that alveolar infiltration would be localized. We also have atypical pneumonia, which is caused by either atypical bacteria like mycoplasma or chlamydia, or it could also be viral, potentially fungal. So the signs and symptoms here are fever, dyspnea, malaise, headache, and dry cough. You're gonna have very minimal findings on physical exam and on checks chest x-ray, you're not going to see alveolar infiltration, but you will see patchy, diffuse parenchymal infiltration. So since we don't have that alveolar infiltration, you won't have the classic signs and symptoms of pneumonia. Ventilation is not going to be affected, but the inflammation in the parenchyma will limit diffusion and perfusion. This is also known as a walking pneumonia, and you'll see it that very patchy, diffuse distribution that's confined to the interstitial space. Differentiate between community-acquired and hospital-acquired pneumonia. Community-acquired pneumonia is acquired outside the hospital, nursing home, and any real healthcare facility, and it would be diagnosed within 48 hours of admission. Hospital pneumonia is a healthcare-acquired infection, also known as nosocomial infections. They are known to be more resistant and have a higher mortality rate since the bacteria found in hospitals are generally more resistant than the bacteria found in communities. It's the second most common nosocomial infection and the risk is higher in immunocompromised people.
also differentiate between viral and bacterial pneumonia. Once again, viral, you'll see non-productive cough, a low-grade fever, normal or low white blood cells, no consolidation on chest x-ray, and minimal x-ray findings generally. You would also have minimal ventilation perfusion changes. It would be less severe and you do not treat with antibiotics. Bacterial pneumonia, you would see a productive cough, a higher fever, elevated white blood cells, consolidation on x-rays, dullness to percussion, E to A agophony, um, low ventilation to perfusion ratio, and you would see shunting. You would see that infiltrate on that x-ray, and it's generally more severe and treated with antibiotics. Explain drug sensitivity and the zone of inhibition. So before an antibiotic would be administered for an infection, testing should be done to determine how sensitive that specific bacteria is to various antibiotics to ensure that the drugs would work effectively against the specific infection. So to check this, you would diffusely spread the bacteria across an agar plate and place little plates of the antibiotics down. The zone of inhibition size would indicate how susceptible the bacteria was to the drug. So if the bacteria died in a large radius around that disk of antibiotic, you would have a large zone of inhibition and that would indicate that it's a good choice because the bacteria is susceptible to that drug. If you had a small zone of inhibition, you would know it was a poor choice because the bacteria is more resistant. Explain how mycobacterium tuberculosis is transmitted. So it's an aerobic bacilli that has contained in a protective waxy capsule, so it's able to remain dormant for years. It's expelled with coughing, sneezing, shouting, and singing in anyone infected, and it would spread via airborne form through droplet nuclei. Describe the pathophysiology of tuberculosis. So tuberculosis enters the alveoli and the body's response, macrophages respond immediately to wall it off and then T cells would be launching a cell mediated immune response and fibroblasts would continue to wall off the bacteria. So this particular immune response form is what's called a granuloma. That could be seen, it's called a Gohn lesion on x-rays. So you'll have these little kind of capsules of walled off bacteria with caseous necrosis in the center that appears like curdled milk on x-ray. So after an infection, it would take three to six weeks to have a positive TB reaction with testing. And once that bacteria is fully walled off, it would lie dormant and would be non-infectious. So from this point of latent tuberculosis, 10% of healthy individuals with latent tuberculosis would have infectious tuberculosis at some point in life. And then in people with low immunity, untreated HIV and children younger than five have a much higher risk. They have a seven to 10% risk of developing it every year. We also have drug resistant tuberculosis, which could be primary, meaning the resistance develops in the person initially affected with those resistant organisms or secondary, which means it would be acquired and develop at some point during the tuberculosis therapy. Differentiate between latent tuberculosis and infectious tuberculosis. So latent tuberculosis infection, that patient has a small amount of tuberculosis in the body that is alive, but it is inactive. The patient is not sick and they cannot spread tuberculosis to others, though they could potentially become sick or contagious in the future if the bacteria became active. They would have a reaction to tubercular skin or blood tests. Any radiographs done, sputum spears, and cultures would come out normal and you should consider treatment to prevent active tubercular disease. They do not, these patients do not require respiratory isolation and are not considered a tuberculosis case. We also have tubercular disease, which is infectious. So this is when patients have a large amount of active tuberculosis in the body. They could spread the tuberculosis bacteria to others. 
They might feel sick and have symptoms of cough, fever, weight loss, night sweats, all those classic findings. You would have a TB test or blood test reaction. You would also see abnormal radiographs, sputum spears, and cultures. This patient needs treatment and they would require respiratory isolation and be considered active tuberculosis cases with the health department. Describe PPD testing and how to interpret the test. So the PPD test is also known as the Manteau skin test. So 0.1 milliliters of tuberculin units are injected into the skin of the forearm. With the injection, you should produce an elevated wheel. For interpretation, you would be assessing 48 to 72 hours after injection, and this would be by palpating the injection site. So when you're measuring, you're measuring only in duration, not erythema. You would record the size of the induration in millimeters, and a normal response would be zero millimeters of induration in documentation. To interpret the results, anything greater than five millimeters in duration would be considered positive in patients with HIV, anyone with recent contact with someone who has infectious TB, any fibrotic changes found in an x-ray consistent with prior TB, and immunocompromised people. Greater than 10 millimeters in duration is positive in recent arrivals from high prevalent countries, IV drug users, uh, residents and employees of high-risk settings such as hospitals, lab employees that work with mycobacterium, people with conditions that increase TB risk, children less than five, and any children or youth exposed to high-risk adults. So the process of two-step testing, you'll get your first test. If it's positive, you're considered infected. If it's negative, you would give a second test one to three weeks later. If you have a second test, if it's positive, once again, you're considered infected. And if it's negative, you're considered uninfected. This process would be the same for any mothers during pregnancy. You would administer to any pregnant woman with risk factors, and it is safe for pregnancy. There is alternative testing in interferon gamma release assay or T-spot. This is preferred for patients who might be lost to follow-up and not return for PPD reading or potentially had received the BCG vaccine. The gold, diagno <laughs> the gold diagnostic standard for TB is a sputum culture. So describe the BCG vaccine. It's a vaccine made from a live attenuated strand of Mycobacterium bovis. It's used in many tubercular present countries to prevent severe tuberculosis disease. It's generally not recommended in the US, but it might be given in very limited circumstances after a consultation with the health department and tuberculosis experts. Identify signs, symptoms, and diagnostic testing for TB. So signs and symptoms, prolonged cough over three weeks, hemoptysis, chest pain, decreased appetite, unexplained weight loss, night sweats, fever, fatigue. For a diagnosis, once again, that sputum culture is the gold standard. You could also do an acid fast stain and a chest x-ray. In findings on the x-ray, you would see those gone foci, which are those granulomas with the caseous necrosis inside the nodule. The area of necrosis might become calcified with calcium, and you could also see lymph lesions. Differentiate between the induction and continuation phase of treatment with TB. So induction is the first two months of treatment. Drugs given are trying to actively eliminate the dividing tubercle back bacilli. So four drugs, isoniazide, rifampin, ethambutol, and pyrazinamide. pyrazinamide. Next, you have the continuation phase, which lasts for eight weeks, or 18 weeks, excuse me. Continuation phase is 18 weeks. This eliminates any tuberculosis that persists intracellularly. So here you'll have isoniazid and rifampin. 
So when you're evaluating the efficacy of treatment, you do bacteriological evaluation of sputum every two to four weeks and then monthly after your first negative sputum culture. 90% of patients should be negative after three months of treatment. You'd also clinically evaluate the patient to see if they have symptoms like fever, malaise, anorexia, and cough, which should improve within two weeks of initial diagnosis. And with chest x-ray, you should see improvement within three months. Explain the purpose of direct observation therapy. So drugs would be dosed two to three times weekly and the patient would be directly observed taking them. This is the most effective way to make sure that the patients are compliant with such a complicated treatment. Differentiate between Hansen's and Mycobacterium avium complex. So in Hansen's disease, it's infection with Mycobacterium leprae causes skin lesions, neuropathy, and respiratory tract problems and leads to major deformities if it's left untreated. Treatment would include rifampin, dapsone, and clofazamine. We also have Mycobacterium avium complex, so this could be this would be um, Mycobacterium avium and Mycobacterium intracellulare. This causes respiratory lesions that can spread to any organ potentially. You could give prophylactic drugs, including azithromycin or clarithromycin, and to treat an acute infection, you give ethambutol and rifampin. Okay, this is module eight, disorders of ventilation. Differentiate between hydrothorax, empyema, chylothorax, and hemothorax. So hydrothorax is serous fluid in the area surrounding the lungs and the thoracic cavity. Empyema is purulent fluid, so pus. Chylothorax is fatty lymph fluid. This is the most common in certain tumors, but could happen for other reasons. And also hemothorax is blood. Describe attention pneumothorax and complications. So in attention pneumothorax, air enters the pleural cavity and creates positive pressure, where there should usually be negative pressure. This restricts lung expansion, so you would see partial or complete collapse of the affected lung. The increased pressure in the thoracic cavity would also move the trachea and mediastinum to the opposite side, so you would see that midline shift. Once again, overall, the positive pressure in the pleural space and thoracic cavity causes midline shift, including tracheal shift, cardiac compression, and lung deflation. Describe an obstructive disease. In obstructive diseases, patients are able to get air into their lungs, but are unable to expire it. So this is asthma and COPD. This is the opposite of restrictive diseases, where patients are unable to inhale and bring in air effectively, which could be in people with excess weight or potentially MS. Differentiate between asthma, emphysema, and chronic bronchitis. So asthma is a type one hypersensitivity in which an allergen prompts the release of IgE, which causes mast cells to degranulate. The mast cells then release inf inflammatory mediators like histamine, leukotrienes, interleukins, and prostaglandins. This directly causes infiltration of inflammatory cells and inflammation leading to bronchospasm. It results in airway inflammation within 48 hours of the initial incident. Some causes include genetic influences, repeated infection, tissue injury, exercise, inhaled irritants, sensitivity to aspirin, and NSAIDs. You would see generally chronic inflammation that leads to bronchial hyperactivity, causing that bronchospasm with exposure to irritants such as cold, exercise, smoke, and more. 
Some signs and symptoms of asthma include bronchospasm, which decreases the size of the lumens, increased mucus production, vasodilation, and vascular permeability that causes tissue edema, which would further decrease that bronchial lumen size. You also have end expiratory wheeze due to the difficulty with expiration and getting that air pushed out. We have emphysema, which is generally a chronic inflammatory process in the loss of alveolar tissue. So in the pathophysiology of it, we have inhaled irritants that would attract neutrophils that then release elastase and other proteases. In a healthy person, alpha-1 antitrypsin would inactivate these proteases before they can damage the alveoli. But in tobacco users, alpha-1 antitrypsin is inactivated itself, so the proteases are free to degrade lung tissue. This could also be caused by a genetic disorder, but is significantly more rare. It's usually due to tobacco use. So these proteases degrade the elastic fibers in the lungs, and smoking also promotes the inflammatory process. And that infl those inflammatory mediators, of course, cause the release of elastase that destroy those elastin fibers. So it's negatively impacting the alveoli in two ways. We do have two types, central lobular, which affects the bronchioles in the center of the lobe, but the alveolar ducts and sacs are preserved. We also have panaciner, panaciner uh, in which peripheral alveoli are initially involved and it later extends to involve more central bronchioles. So the effects of emphysema, the alveoli become larger and lose functioning surface area for gas exchange. So they're less effective, you lose surface area. The bronchial lumens also become smaller. Since the elastic fibers are degraded, they get replaced by fibrotic scar tissue, which contracts, and you would also have mucus accumulation. So we have large alveoli, small mucosobronchioles. Patients would then have difficulty expelling the air from the overinflated alveoli through the narrow bronchioles. So some signs and symptoms that you would see, they call them pink puffers. <laughs> so the patient would have a barrel chest, meaning that the anterior posterior to transverse ratio of the chest is one to one, so their, their thoracic cavity has expanded with all the air being retained. To percussion, you would hear hyperresonance from that overinflated alveoli, a lot of air is trapped in there. You would have that progressive loss of lung tissue, of course, you'd see weight loss, mild hypoxemia, but no hypercarbia. The patients have few secretions, but they do have pursed lip breathing and accessory muscle use. There would be decreased breath sounds, and the patients would be increasing respiration, which is why they're called puffers, to maintain oxygen levels, but they would have dyspnea and increased ventilatory effort. On the other hand, we have chronic bronchitis. This is generally just a chronic irritation of the airways. So with those irritants, usually tobacco smoke once again, you would have the increased formation of mucosal goblet cells with mucus hypersecretion, which is occurring as a strategy to protect the tissue and airways. So this would lead to airway plugging and cause inflammation and progressive fibrosis of the bronchial walls. So you would also see these thick, thick secretions that cause stasis and aren't, they're so thick they're unable to be cleared. So they're basically creating the perfect environment for bacteria to thrive. So there's a very high risk of infection. You would also have that destruction of elastic fibers from tobacco and the recurrent infection and bronchial inflammation. So signs and symptoms, they call them blue bloaters. They'd have a productive cough for three months before diagnosis in a typical patient. You'd have very copious foul smelling sputum from those repeated infections. There'd be chronic airway inflammation. Patients tend to be either obese, edematous, or have just fluid retention. 
Patients develop right-sided heart failure, known as core pulmonale. They would have crackles and wheezes, copious secretions, and would be unable to increase respiration enough to maintain oxygenation, so you would have hypoxemia and hypercarbia, along with an increased hematocrit as kind of a compensatory way to try to resolve this problem. Next, describe bronchiectasis, pulmonary embolism, pulmonary hypertension, and core pulmonale. Bronchiectasis is a chronic irreversible dilation of the bronchioles. So this is caused by destruction of elastic fibers and recurrent inflammation, fibrosis, and infection. This would be seen in chronic bronchitis. You have pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in the pulmonary arteries, usually the result of um, venous thromboembolus. Signs and symptoms would be sudden onset shortness of breath, pleuritic chest pain, and hemoptysis. For diagnosis, you would ideally obtain a spiral or helical CT with contrast to visualize that clot. If the patient had renal problems that prevented them from receiving contrast, you could also get a ventilation perfusion VQ scan with nuclear dye and progressive x-rays to evaluate the absorption of that dye and get a better idea of perfusion. Treatment usually involves heparin or other anticoagulants to prevent further, further clotting. They might use thrombolytics. Um, they could surgically remove the clot if it's severe enough and it's causing severe hemodynamic instability. Prevention really is the most essential part, so you want to make sure with your patients who are doing early ambulation, you use SCDs, prophylactic heparin. Um, in the community, avoiding long car plane rides and moving every hour, not smoking and avoiding oral contraceptives are strategies for prevention. You also have pulmonary hypertension, which is an elevated blood pressure in the lungs. It usually should be about 28 over 8. So primary causes, there's a genetic disorder that causes thickening and constriction of blood vessels. It starts in the 30s and 40s and acutely worsens with pregnancy. Overall, there's a very poor prognosis. They don't live very many years. Secondary pulmonary hypertension is caused by factors outside of the pulmonary artery. So this can include the elevation of pulmonary venous pressure, increased pulmonary blood flow, pulmonary vascular obstruction, hypoxemia, other things as well. And this will lead to core pulmonale, which is our last one. Core pulmonale is right-sided heart failure of a respiratory origin. So you're going to have decreased lung ventilation, which leads to pulmonary vasoconstriction to kind of get that VQ equation matching up. That vasoconstriction causes increased workload for the right heart, and you'll start to see tissue hypoxia. In response to the tissue hypoxia, the kidney is going to release erythropoietin, which causes more red blood cells to be produced. It causes this excess of red blood cell production, causes polycythemia, which makes the blood more viscous, and then increases the workload on the heart even more. Okay, describe the pathophysiology and management of acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. So in ARDS, a precipitating event causes damage to the endothelium of the pulmonary capillaries. This leads to inflammation, bronchoconstriction, vasoconstriction, and congestion. So we'll see increased capillary permeability, which causes fluid to leak, fluid and plasma proteins to leak into the lung tissue, causing a diffuse bilateral pulmonary edema. This causes... This influx of fluid causes damage to the type 2 alveolar cells that are responsible for surfactant production. Then the loss of surfactant causes progressive atelectasis and decreased lung compliance, since it's a lot more difficult for those alveoli to expand. It causes severe hypoxemia. If a patient does survive, they will have severe fibrotic changes. 
as their body responds to heal that damaged lung tissue. The clinical manifestations include increased respiratory rate into the 40s, labored breathing and accessory muscle use, crackles, and diffuse, diffuse lung infiltrate. They call it a whiteout because there's so much fluid in the lungs. The hallmark sign, though, is hypoxemia that doesn't respond to increased oxygen administration. So if they're on 2 liters, 4 liters, 6 liters, nothing is going to help their condition because their lungs simply are not able to respond. Okay, differentiate between MDI, Respimat, DPI, and nebulizer delivery system. So MDI is a metered dose inhaler, which is a pressurized device that lets you synchronize with inhalation. So patient instructions for MDIs, you want to hold the inhaler immediately in front of your mouth, exhale normally, then you press down the inhaler down as you begin inspiration, breathe in slowly and deeply. Hold your breath for 10 seconds or as long as you can, then breathe out slowly. After the first puff, you want to wait two minutes to take your second puff. And the reason for that is the first puff will cause bronchodilation, which is then going to increase the surface area for medication absorption, so your second puff will be even more effective. Respinat is a delivery system that delivers drugs as a very fine mist with extremely small particle size. So this is going to improve delivery of the drugs to the lungs and decrease deposition in the mouth and oropharynx. We also have DPI, which is a dry powdered inhaler. It's going to deliver dry micronized powder directly to the lungs. So this would be highly effective in patients who have difficulty coordinating the movement because you just use the handle to push and puncture that foil and then suck in the powder that the capsule released. So there doesn't have to be that kind of timed coordination that you would see with an MDI. You could also use a nebulizer via face mask, but it generally improves the absorption of drugs with nebulizer. And you could, the big advantage is that you breathe in with slow, normal, easy respirations. And this is a great option for kids. Explain how spacers improve medication delivery with MDIs. So spacers are going to help patients who don't have the coordination to inhale as they push down on their MDI. So without spacers, the majority of the drug is going to be deposited into the mouth and the throat. But spacers allow approximately double the amount, a total of 21% of the drug to reach the lungs. So they're a great option to increase that absorption. Differentiate between abortive and controller medications in the treatment of obstructive airway disorders. So we have rescue or abortive meds. Those provide immediate relief within 5 to 15 minutes. Patients should have their rescue meds with them at all times. And this would include short-acting um, beta agonists and also short-acting muscarinic antagonists, such as albuterol as a SABA. Um, so we also have controller drugs, which support long-term control of the symptoms. So it usually takes about one to two weeks to reach therapeutic levels and exert those benefits. So it is used as a maintenance drug to prevent exacerbations from occurring in the first place. So you would only use controller drugs if they had problems that reached a certain severity. So if they needed their albuterol, albuterol rescue drug more than two times weekly, if they needed more than two inhalers per year, if they wake themselves coughing more than two times monthly, and if they have more than two episodes of bronchitis per year. Those would all indicate that the patient with asthma or another problem needed controller medications. So glucocorticoids are going to be our first line controller agents. 
They are going to be decreasing synthesis and release of inflammatory mediators, reduce infiltration and the activity of inflammatory cells, decrease the edema of airway mucosa by decreasing vascular permeability. They also suppress inflammation, so they're decreasing bronchial hyperreactivity, decreasing airway mucus production, and they might actually increase the number of beta-2 receptors and their responsiveness to beta-2 agonists. So you want to make sure that you're using this prophylactically in chronic asthma on a fixed dosage schedule. It would never be used as a rescue or abortive drug since it does take a couple of weeks to get to therapeutic levels. So IV administration for glucocorticoids, it would be short term and it's not very common. With oral administration, there is a risk of adrenal suppression since you would have systemic absorption. Patients would be need to need to be weaned off very slowly when they're taken off this drug to support the return of adrenal function. And the long-term effects are kind of all of those classic glucocorticoid effects. We have cataracts, glaucoma, bone loss. They can also decrease growth in kids, although that should be a temporary setback. In inhaled glucocorticoids, you have minimal glucocorticoid reaching a systemic circulation. So it's definitely has fewer side effects. The one big risk is oropharyngeal candidiasis infections and dysphonia. So you want to make sure that patients are gargling after each administration using a spacer if they can and brushing their teeth immediately after to clear that medication out of their oropharynx. We also have leukotriene modifiers. These are second line controller drugs. They're suppressing the effects of leukotrienes. So they decrease bronchoconstriction, eosinophil infiltration, mucus production, and edema. Cremelin is an inhaled drug. It suppresses bronchial inflammation by inhibiting inflammatory cells and stabilizing mast cell membranes, so it's decreasing histamine release in the first place. It would be given prophylactically and also for acute prophylaxis, like immediately before exercise, to decrease exercise-induced bronchospasm. Finally, we have omalizumab, which is a second-line drug. It's very expensive. There isn't a ton of evidence for it but it's a monoclonal antibody used for only allergy-related asthma. So, and only in patients that were not responsive to inhaled glucocorticoids and leukotriene modifiers, so those first and second line drugs. Omalizumab is going to block the allergic response by binding IgE in the blood, and this is a subcutaneous weekly injection. So differentiate between SABA, LABA, SAMA, LAMA medications in terms of mechanism of action and when it's appropriate to use. So first we have our beta-2 adrenergic agonists. Generally speaking, the oral effect or the adverse effects, we have inhaled adverse effects, which involve tachycardia, angina, and tremor. And then oral adverse effects are generally going to be more severe than inhaled since they're entering systemic circulation and they can be severe enough to cause poor compliance in patients. So you're going to see angina pectoris, tachydysrhythmias, and also tremors once again, because we do have those beta-2 receptors on the muscles. We also have short-acting beta-2 agonists. So this is a certain type of beta-2 agonist. It's rapid. So it's a rescue medication. The effects begin between 5 to 15 minutes after administration. They peak in 30 to 60 minutes, and they last about 3 to 5 hours. 
Our drug for this is albuterol. It's taken as needed to abort ongoing attacks or right before exercise to produce or to prevent exercise-induced bronchospasm. Nebulized short-acting beta agonists are kind of the treatment of choice for acute episodes, but delivery with an MDI outpatient is also highly effective. We also have the long-acting beta agonist, so this is a controller medication. We have salametrol is our drug for this section. So you would be taking this on a fixed dosing schedule for long-term control in patients who are experiencing frequent attacks. It's also effective in treating stable COPD. And in asthma, this is probably the most important thing about this drug. You never use salametrol alone. It must be combined with an inhaled glucocorticoid. There was a black box warning for it, which indicates severe risk or side effect, and there was a study that found huge adverse effects in death, but only in patients that weren't taking a glucocorticoid. So, it is safe for asthma patients, but only with glucocorticoids as well. And in asthma patients, you would always just be starting with a glucocorticoid if their rescue medications weren't enough. That is always the first-line treatment, but if in it wasn't working for that initial treatment, you could try the glucocorticoid and long-acting beta agonist salametrol combination if the initial therapy failed. Our next class is muscarinic antagonists. So these are approved for COPD only, and they're going to improve lung function by blocking muscarinic receptors in the bronchi to decrease bronchoconstriction. So we have our short-acting muscarinic antagonists. These last six hours, we have Ipra... Tropium is our drug for this, and it's going to be less effective than beta-2 agonists, but could be used in combination for COPD. The important thing with this, with ipratropium, it's contraindicated in peanut allergies. They share a very similar protein that could cause a life-threatening allergic reaction. In our long-acting muscarinic antagonists, they last about 24 hours, and in this category we have teotropium. This would be approved for maintenance therapy and COPD, but not asthma. Describe the use of methylxanthines and precautions. So this would be theophylline is a methylxanthine. It causes bronchodilation by releasing the smooth muscle of the bronchi. So it could be PO, but usually PO, but it could also be IV. And the important thing with theophylline is it has an extremely narrow therapeutic range. Plasma level should be between 10 to 20 micrograms per milliliter, and it's toxic above 25 micrograms per milliliter. So 10 to 20 theophylline. The adverse effects that you would see with those toxic levels include nausea, vomiting, cardiac stimulation, vasodilation, diuresis, tremor, and anxiety. And it's important to remember that those drug levels would be increased by cimetidine, which is a GERD drug, or for gastric ulcers and antibiotics. Okay, so this is module nine, which includes renal diseases and renal failure. So objective one, differentiate between filtration, reabsorption, and secretion. So filtration is the initial production of urine filtrate in the glomerulus. So the blood enter enters the glomerulus via afferent arterioles, which are slightly larger than the efferent arterioles. This size difference creates pressure in Bowman's capsule to allow filtration. Glomerular capillary cells sit along one side of a basement membrane while Bowman's capsule epithelial cells are on the other side on pseudopods to filter the fluid through. The filtrate then enters the proximal tubule and contains fluid, electrolytes, and waste, so it's very similar to plasma but without proteins and red blood cells. Hopefully. 
Um, reabsorption is the process where elements in the initial filtrate that the body still needs are returned to the blood. So this includes water, electrolytes, amino acids, and acid-base elements. It occurs via concentration gradients and active transport mechanisms. Finally, we have secretion, which is the final adjustment of the tubule before urine is excreted. So any other elements that the body wants to remove are secreted into the urine. It allows a really high level of fine-tuning. Explain the function of the vasorecta. This is the network of blood vessels that surrounds each individual nephron. The vasorecta allows for the reabsorption and secretion of ions, water, and other components. Describe the juxtaglomerular apparatus. So this is going to regulate the glomerular filtration rate, GFR, by excreting renin. So the juxtaglomerular cells de detect the amount of pressure slash fluid volume that enters the glomerulus via the afferent arteriole. The macula densa cells are going to detect the sodium concentration within the urine filtrate. So renin is going to be released when there is a decreased afferent arterial pressure and or increased urine sodium osmolality. Describe how the renin angiotensin aldosterone system, antidiuretic hormone, and natriuretic peptides regulate fluid balance. So the ROS system, renin converts angiotensinogen into A1, angiotensinogen or angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1 meets the angiotensin converting enzyme ACE in the lungs and it's converted to A2 which is a potent vasoconstrictor that also prompts aldosterone release. Aldosterone causes increased sodium and water reabsorption which raises blood volume and potassium is excreted. So the net effect fluid retention, vaso vasoconstriction, and potassium excretion. Antidiuretic hormone, um, it's released when osmoreceptors in the hypothalamus detect increased osmolality. So the posterior pituitary releases ADH. Aquaporins are inserted into the collecting duct to reabsorb more water from the urine filtrate to the blood, the vasorecta. So the net effect is water retention, not sodium, just water. Our natriuretic peptides include ANP, which are released by overstretched atria in response to increased preload, and BNP, which is released by overworked ventricles. So ANP, atria, BNP, ventricles. The effects, they cause the kidney to stop reabsorption of sodium and water. More sodium and water is excreted in the urine to reduce blood volume and decrease the stretch slash workload on the heart. The net effect is sodium and water excretion. Describe inherited cystic disorders. So we have polycystic kidney disease. It could be autosomal dominant, which is usually diagnosed in childhood. So when cysts arrive from every segment of the nephron, it's often associated with other disorders like triple A's and cerebral aneurysms. Autosomal recessive, on the other hand, is usually diagnosed in kids, whereas autosomal dominant is diagnosed in adulthood. Um, we have these elongated cysts that arise from the renal tubules so they go kind of along the whole length of that tubule. They're associated with lung impairment, portal hypertension, and liver disease, and it has a very high mortality rate. These children are not going to be surviving to adulthood. We also have nephronophthysis, medullary cystic disease. So this is a group of renal disorders with onset in childhood. Um, the cysts are going to form at the corticomedullary junction along with a distal tubular atrophy and sclerosis occurring. It leads to eventual renal atrophy of the medulla and cortex and probable renal failure. 
There can also be extra renal involvement, including vision problems, cerebellar problems, and liver problems. We also have cystic disease of the kidney. So here we have fluid-filled sacs of, on the kidney. Simple, does not, they do not affect renal function, and they are more common in the elderly and acquired. It's usually the result of something like chemodialysis. Describe how renal compartment syndrome results in ischemia. So hydronephrosis occurs when the kidney becomes expanded with urine, leading to increased pressure within the renal capsule. This renal capsule is surrounded by a stiff and flexible fascia. The increased pressure causes compression of blood vessels against the fascia, leading to compartment syndrome, since it's cutting off that blood flow. You'll then see renal ischemia and stasis of urine, causing increased infection risk and stone formation. Describe theories of renal calculi formation and the composition of renal calculi. So there are a few theories. Um, we have the saturation theory, which is that urine is supersaturated with stone components, so they kind of crystallize. The matrix theory, organic materials act as a nidus, nidus for stone formation. Inhibitor theory, there's a deficiency of substances that inhibit stone formation. So in reality, it's going to be a combination of probably all three of those plus other factors. Stone composition, we have calcium stones, which are usually calcium oxalate or calcium phosphate. We have struvite, which are magnesium ammonium phosphate stones, and these are caused by infections, struvite infections. We have uric acid stones, which are from excessive uric acid in the blood that's excreted. It's also associated with gout. And we have cysteine stones, which are associated with a genetic disorder. So prevention and treatment, it really depends on the composition, but you want to increase fluids, make sure you're straining urine to find any stones so you can get the composition analyzed in the lab. You would decrease the oxalate intake if they were calcium-based stones, including nuts, chocolate, spinach, and chard. You would want to take drugs to bind calcium oxalate in the GI tract. Um, thiazide diuretics decrease calcium excretion to decrease the amount of calcium in urine filtrate, so that can be a good option. Um, patients can usually pass stones below 5 millimeters, but if they were larger, they could form obstruction, and so in that case, there might be surgical options. So you could do lithotripsy, in which ultrasound or sound waves break up the stone so the patient can pass the smaller components. You have ureteroscopic removal. You enter via the ureters to remove the stones, and then also open removal with incisions. Describe UTI pathophysiology and risk factors for UTIs. So UTIs generally ascend from the urethral opening and bladder. We have a lot of host defenses, including the washout phenomena, which is the process of urinating, rinsing out the bacteria to decrease infection risk. We also have protective mucus, local immune responses, including immunoglobulin A and macrophages, and then also normal bacteria flora, which provide competition for pathogens. Um, a contributor to the problem is ureteral reflux. Usually the ureter ureter runs along the bladder wall so when the bladder contracts for urination the ureter is closed off but if the ureter is shortened and does not run along the bladder wall it won't be closed off by muscle contraction you could have reflux up into those kidneys the major risk factor in hospital settings catheter use so differentiate between acute and chronic pyelonephritis acute is usually a gram negative bacteria like e coli You'd see chills, fever, headache, CVA tenderness. There's also a risk of sepsis, and you would be treated with IV antibiotics, most likely. 
You could also have chronic pyelonephritis. That's a progressive process where you have chronic inflammation that creates an obstruction that prevents healing and promotes further inflammation. The risk would be increased by hypertension. Um, explain the pathophysiology of glomerulonephritis or nephritic syndrome. So this condition occurs 7 to 10 days after a group A beta hemolytic strep infection or another viral agent. So circulating immune complexes would get trapped in the glomerular membrane and expose the basement membrane to the effects of the inflammatory process. So patients would develop a number of symptoms. They would have a mild to moderate proteinuria, hematuria, which would cause dark coke-colored urine, a loss of plasma proteins, including decreased, which would then cause decreased colloidal osmotic pressure in the blood. You'd also have oliguria and sodium and water retention, so the kidneys are unable to filter the water out, leading to fluid retention. You'd also see edema, especially periorbital, since we're losing those proteins and have decreased colloidal osmotic pressure. There's nothing to keep fluids in the vascular space, so they're leaving and going to the interstitial space. Finally, we'd have hypertension from the increased volume with fluid retention. So treatment is mostly symptomatic. You would use diuretics, antihypertensive therapies, anti-inflammatory drugs, sodium restrictions, and potentially CRRT or hemodialysis if necessary. And it's important to note that unlike rheumatic heart disease, this cannot always be prevented with antibiotics for strep throat. Okay, describe the pathophysiology of nephrotic syndrome. So this is a collection of symptoms caused by glomerular damage. So damage to the basement membrane results in increased permeability to proteins, causing profound proteinuria, 3.5 plus grams per 24 hours, and hypoproteinemia, which means that there is less protein in the blood. You would have a major loss of colloidal osmotic pressure from that protein loss and severe edema. The body then would detect this decreased blood volume and activate the ROS and ADH release systems. So you would have sodium and water retention that results in oliguria. The liver also detects this decreased protein and would begin to produce large, large amounts of cholesterol since it's easiest to make out of all the proteins. So this leads to hyperlipidemia. You'd also see hypercoagulability from increased clotting factors, so usually excessive clotting factors are excreted via the urine, so oliguria would cause increased factor concentration in the blood. Um, we also know that protein, of course, is the basis for antibodies and complement proteins, so the hypoproteinemia would cause decreased immune competence as well, so they'd be very um, prone to infections. The decreased albumin would also mean the body is less able to bind and carry drugs and hormones. So in this condition, we have a high risk of atherosclerosis from hyperlipidemia, also a high risk of DVT, PE, and other clotting from the hypercoagulability. So compare nephritic and nephrotic syndrome. Nephritic syndrome is when we have that mild edema, mild proteinuria, profound hematuria, the Coca-Cola-colored urine, urine in nephritic syndrome. You'd have a normal or slightly low albumin and an elevated blood pressure. In nephrotic syndrome, you're going to have that profound edema, profound proteinuria. You may or may not have hematuria. You would have low, low serum albumin and maybe elevated BP, but it could also be normal. Describe the pathophysiology of glomerular diseases associated with systemic diseases. So you could have diabetic glomerular sclerosis, which is sclerotic thickening of the basement membrane caused by the inappropriate incorporation of glucose into the non-cellular components of the glomerular structures. So this could be really reversed if patients had good blood glucose control and it was early in the course of illness. 
Um, diabetic glomerular sclerosis is also worsened dramatically by hypertension and nicotine. Um, systemic lupus erythematosus causes immune complexes to be deposited into the glomerular wall, which causes an inflammatory process. In kidney injury, you also have hypertensive glomerular disease, which results in narrowing of arterioles, thickening of vessels, and decreased perfusion. Differentiate between acute and chronic renal failure. In AKI, acute kidney injury, you have a rapid decline in kidney function over a few hours or within a day. There is potential that it could be reversed if it's recognized early and treated correctly and appropriately. The major causes include ischemia, sepsis, and nephrotoxic agents. So there are a few types. We have pre-renal, which occurs due to a decreased blood supply. So you would have potentially hemorrhage, dehydration, vasoconstriction, and shock there. Intrarenal is an injury to the kidney tubule itself. So this could be from ischemia, toxins, immunoglycosides, organic solvents, and myoglobin. It could also be caused by contrast that decreases the renal blood flow and causes renal tubule injury via free radical damage. Um, one way to pre prevent this intrarenal injury with contrast would be to give N-acetylcysteine or mucomus since it's a vasodilator and contains antioxidants. And then post-renal, you would see that with the blockage of urine flow. So that could be from stones, tumors, or an enlarged prostate. Acute tubular necrosis is when there is ischemia or a toxic injury to the glomerulus and tubules cause abnormal filtration, absorption, and secretion. So you would see decreased urine output and the buildup of toxic metabolites. So some manifestations, neuromuscular irritability, seizures, somnolence, coma, and death. You would also have fluid electrolyte imbalances like hyperkalemia since the kidneys are less able to pass that potassium. You would probably need hemodialysis if your potassium level was over 7, and then also circulatory overload. So the treatment for acute tubular necrosis as an AKI would be to treat the underlying cause, give dopamine to increase renal perfusion, and potentially use hemodialysis and CRRT if it was indicated. So the process of AKI, it starts with onset, which is the precipitating event occurring until the tubular injury occurs. So that could be hours to days. Then you have an allegoric or anoric phase. So there's a notable decrease in GFR. There's fluid and endogenous metabolites retained. You have elevated urea, potassium, and creatinine. The signs and symptoms would be fluid retention, edema, pulmonary congestion, hypertension, and signs of uremia. And this lasts from 8 to 14 days. Then you'd have the diuretic phase. So the urine output is increasing. The kidney's trying to heal. You would still see some tubular scarring and damage. And this is generally before renal function is fully back. So the urine output's increasing, but the BUN, creatinine, potassium, and phosphate might stay elevated or even continue to rise. Finally, in recovery, the GFR, urine output, and nitrogenous waste levels are returning to normal. So chronic kidney disease occurs with kidney damage or a glomerular filtration rate below 60 milliliters per minute for at least three months. So for you to have CKD, it requires a loss of 80% of the nephrons. And then since fewer nephrons are remaining functional, the remaining nephrons must filter more. So they're going to have hyperperfusion and hypertrophy of those nephrons. The most common causes are hypertension, diabetic, kidney disease, could also be lupus and NSAID use. So the pathophysiology, the kidneys have diminished renal reserves since the nephrons are working as hard as they can already. 
you'll have renal insufficiency. The nephrons are no longer able to regulate urine concentration of the urine filtrate ends up with the same concentration as the plasma. Then it could progress to renal failure where the nephrons are unable to maintain normal blood composition and then it ends in end-stage renal disease which requires dialysis or kidney transplant. So the progression, we have that diminished renal reserve, it goes to renal insufficiency, renal failure, and then it ends in end-stage renal disease or ESRD. Uh, differentiate between azotemia and uremia. So azotemia is the accumulation of nitrogenous waste. So our BUN, the blood urea nitrogen, should be between 8 and 25. 8 and 25 for our BUN. So the amount of nitrogen in the blood that comes from urea is measured in this value. And urea is a waste product of protein digestion. So this value could be affected by diet, hydration status, and liver function. Creatinine should be between 0.8 to 1.4, and this is going to be our most reliable nitrogenous waste indicator of renal function. Since creatinine is a direct component of muscle metabolism, it's not going to be affected by extraneous factors. So to check kidney function, creatinine, not BUN. You can also check the glomerular filtration ratio in a healthy person. It should be over 90 milliliters per minute. So that's azotemia. We also have uremia uremia, which are the clinical manifestations of renal failure. So we'll have altered fluid and electrolyte balance. You'll see hyperkalemia, hyponatremia, and edema. You'll see acidosis. So since wastes are building up in the blood, you'll have elevated creatinine and BUN, which are both neurotoxic. You'll have the loss of the function of the renoangiotensin-aldosterone systems, which cause hypertension. Um, you'd have decreased erythropoietin, causing anemia, decreased vitamin D activation, leading to bone loss and other abnormalities. And that's generally uremia. So complications of renal failure, cardiovascularly, you have that drop in erythropoietin production since the kidneys aren't working well, which leads to anemia. So blood viscosity is decreased. So the blood is moving through vessels far more rapidly than normal. So heart rate is going to increase as a compensatory mechanism. You'll have the loss of renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system, so you're going to have increased blood pressure. You'll also have the loss of erythropoietin, so that's causing anemia, which decreases blood supply or oxygen supply. So all of this would lead to increased workload for the left heart, resulting in left ventricular dilation and hypertrophy. And since there isn't enough oxygen carrying capability with that anemia to support left ventricular contraction, you'll have angina, ischemia, and left-sided heart failure. You can also see renal osteodystrophy, so vitamin D isn't going to be activated in those kidneys to promote calcium absorption, so you'll have decreased serum calcium, which would cause the release of parathyroid hormone, which promotes the calcium loss from bone via those osteoclasts. The kidneys are also unable to clear phosphorus, so the elevated phosphorus levels are going to be competing with calcium and decreasing serum calcium levels even further. Some GI manifestations include anorexia, nausea, and vomiting, Patients will have metallic taste in their mouth from the buildup of nitrogenous waste. They'll also have increased ammonia production, which leads to gastritis and ulceration. They would also have increased parathyroid hormone levels to increase gastric secretions. Finally, as the last complication, you have a uremic encephalopathy, which is when toxic metabolites cause neurologic effects. So you'd have muscular weakness, decreased mental ability, malaise, somnolence, coma, and death. 
uh, differentiate between hemodialysis, peritoneal dialysis, and continuous renal replacement therapy, or CRRT. So hemodialysis, the blood is passed through a sem different semipermeable membrane. So they're going to be functioning with osmosis and diffusion to correct met metabolic imbalances. So you'll be removing the nitrogenous waste and fluid. So taking off the excess fluid, you might have to diffuse some bicarb back in to resolve the acid-base imbalances. Um, in an AKI, you might use a dialysis catheter with CVAD, or you could have, um, in chronic kidney disease, you might have an AV fistula, which connects the arteries and veins directly together to create turbulent blood flow. And you would actually be able to feel this. It's called a thrill. So you'd be palpating the turbulent blood flow and you can hear it. It's called a brewery, which is the sound of turbulent blood flow. So the blood would be removed from the artery and replaced back into the veins. We also have peritoneal dialysis, which once again uses osmosis and diffusion to place solution in the peritoneal space. It uses the peritoneal membrane itself as the semi-permeable membrane for diffusion. There are, however, many possible complications since the peritoneum is a sterile place space and the patients would be doing this at home so you'd have to really educate them on maintaining sterility. The benefit to patients is that they could place this overnight maybe for several hours or the entire night and do it passively so they can have a relatively normal quality of life. Um, continual renal replacement therapy CRRT is used for patients that are hemodynamically unstable so um, hemodialysis results in pretty ch big changes in hemodynamic stability, and so CRRT is ideal since it's done continuously over many hours to days to decrease that hemodynamic effect of changes in the blood. Okay, differentiate between stress incontinence and urge incontinence. So stress incontinence is the involuntary loss of urine during periods of increased intra-abdominal pressure. So that could be coughing, laughing, sneezing, lifting, jumping, etc. Urge incontinence is an involuntary loss of urine associated with a strong desire to avoid or urge. Describe the mechanisms of action for medications for an overactive bladder. So you have muscarinic antagonists, which are anticholinergic drugs. Since the parasympathetic system causes detrusor muscle contraction and sphincter relaxation, inhibiting those receptors will decrease the signs and symptoms of overactive bladder. Oxybutynin is our drug here. And the adverse effects are pretty significant. It's all the classic anticholinergic problems. So dry mouth, dry eyes, blurred vision, mydriasis, or um, eye dilation, tachycardia, and sedation. Describe the pathophysiology of erectile dysfunction. So in a healthy erection, when the patient's flaccid, you'll have restricted inflow and free outflow of blood. When the patient becomes aroused, you'd have increased... Um, peripheral nervous system traffic, parasympathetic nervous system traffic, excuse me, which prompts the release of nitrous oxide that activates cyclic AMP camp to allow the influx of arterial blood. So the sinusoidal spaces in the penile tissue will become enlarged and engorged, and the presence of blood there will compress the penile veins to decrease outflow. So this accumulation of blood increases penis size and rigidity. The the erection would then subside when cyclic AMP is removed by phosphodiesterase type 5, which stops the relaxation of their arterial smooth muscle to decrease inflow and allow outflow. So erectile dysfunction can have many possible causes, including diabetes mellitus, cardiovascular disease, spinal cord injuries, autonomic nervous system disorders, testosterone deficiencies, pelvic injury, etc. 
Explain the mechanism of action for erectile dysfunction drugs and cautions slash contraindications. So we have sildenafil, sildenafil, which is also known as Viagra or Viagra, excuse me. So this inhibits the enzyme PDE5 to prolong the erectile response. So the cyclic AMP is not getting broken down. This enhances erectile response to sexual stimuli, and the effects would peak in one hour. Um, absorption would be slowed by high-fat meals, and it should be over within four hours. Adverse effects, you can have really severe hypotension. You want to be very cautious with alpha blockers and absolutely never use them with nitrates like nitroglycerin. Patients who have priapism, they'd want to seek medical attention after four hours of having a continuous erection, and there would be severe consequences after 24 hours. Patients might also have blurred vision or vision loss, hearing loss, headache, dizziness, and nasal congestion. Describe the pathophysiology of benign prostatic hyperplasia. So the prostate is a heart-shaped walnut-sized gland that provides fluids to contribute to ejaculate volume. So in BPH, you have tissue overgrowth that would decrease the lumen size of the urethra and make it more difficult to empty the bladder. This could be a mechanical obstruction, meaning there's an overgrowth of epithelial cells, meaning large prostate or dynamic obstruction, which is an overgrowth of smooth muscle cells, so the prostate is normal. So mechanical, large prostate, dynamic, normal prostate. Explain the mechanisms of action of the medications for BPH and adverse events. So we have five alpha reductase inhibitors. These are going to be used for mechanical obstruction, large prostate. The drug for this is finasteride. Finasteride is going to inhibit 5-alpha reductase, which is the enzyme that activates testosterone in the prostate. So it's going to promote regression of that excessive prostate epithelial tissue to decrease mechanical obstruction. Shrinkage occurs slowly over 6 to 12 months, so there's no rapid response. The drug does decrease the presence of low-grade prostate cancer, but increases high-grade prostate cancer. So even if the patient had low PSA levels, you would still want to consider the possibility of prostate cancer. Adverse effects include decreased ejaculate, decreased libido, and gynecomastia. The drug is also teratogenic to male fetuses, so pregnant women should absolutely not handle the meds, especially when they're crushed, and meds, men who are using this drug should not be donating blood because it could go to a pregnant woman who is a male fetus. Um, alpha adrenergic agonists, or antagonists, excuse me, these drugs are used for dynamic obstruction or smooth muscle overgrowth, which occurs when they have that small prostate. So dynamic obstruction, smooth muscle overgrowth, and small prostate. So this particular drug is going to block the alpha-1 receptors on the smooth muscle in the bladder neck, prostate capsule, and prostatic urethra. It's going to rapidly improve their symptoms, and the size of the prostate would not be decreased. So our drug here is tamsulosin, which is selective for the alpha-1 adrenergic receptors in the prostate, so limits the systemic side effects. Adverse effects include vasodilation and hypotension, and contraindications once again would be nitrates, Viagra, slash all those PDE5 inhibitors and antihypertensives. Okay, so these are going to be the drugs for module 6. Diphenhydramine is a first-generation oral antihistamine, so it's going to treat symptoms like sneezing, rhinorrhea, nasal itching. It will not treat congestion since that's due to the vasodilation itself and not histamine. Adverse effects, it causes major sedation and has a very short half-life, so people are going to be super, super sleepy and they'll need to take it at least twice a day. Despite this, it is highly effective. Loratadine is a second-generation oral antihistamine. 
this is going to have a decreased sedative effect because it does not cross the blood-brain barriers easily. It also has a longer half-life, so you're only going to need to take it once per day. Similarly to diphenhydramine, it also treats sneezing, nasal itching, and rhinorrhea. Fluticasone is an intranasal glucocorticoid. It has an anti-inflammatory effect that suppresses all major symptoms of allergic rhinitis. It is highly effective, but it does take one to two weeks for a therapeutic effect. It's an intranasal drug, as I specified, so there are minimal systemic effects. We also have intranasal chromalin. This suppresses histamine release and is definitely effective. It produces a drying sensation, and this one also takes one to two weeks to take effect. Phenylephrine is a sympathomimetic, so it's an alpha-1 agonist. It causes vasoconstriction of the membranes in the nasal mucosa, which decreases the sensation of stuffiness. Despite this, it does not impact other symptoms like sneezing or rhinorrhea. A really common adverse effect is rebound congestion or vasodilation, since that's the, the pathophysiological reason. So you wouldn't want to take it for over three days, and if you did develop rebound congestion, you'd want to stop for one to two weeks and potentially use a steroid for long-term symptom relief. Adverse effects include restlessness, insomnia, anxiety, and irritability. It is contraindicated in hypertension and coronary artery disease because it is that A1 agonist, so it's going to cause vasoconstriction, which can increase blood pressure and workload on the heart. And it can be used to make meth, so it's a controlled substance. Or can't, sorry. It's not a controlled substance, which is a good thing. Um, next, we have codeine or hydrocodone, so this is an antitussive. It's highly effective in small doses. This one is a scheduled drug, so there's always a risk of dependence and addiction. Dextromethorphan, dextromethorphan is a non-opioid antitussive drug, so it helps with cough as well. It's highly effective. It has an analgesic action, and it also increases the action of opioids. Um, guaifenesin fenicin is an expectorant, so it's also goal is to reduce the cough. So guaifenesin is going to increase the flow of respiratory secretions to help move them. It is effective in high doses and it's recommended that you take it with a full glass of water to kind of help mobilize those secretions. Acetylcysteine, also known as mucomist, has a lot of effects, but in this case it's a mucolytic, so it's also an antitussive. It's acting directly on the mucus to thin it out. And of note, it does have a really high sulfur content, so if it's nebulized, there's going to be a very strong odor. Okay, module 8, our first med is albuterol. So this is a short-acting beta-2 agonist, so a SABA. It's a rescue drug for asthma, and it prevents acute exercise-induced bronchitis. It is taken PRN via an MDI or nebulizer, and to use it, you would take, you would push up one puff as you'd inhale slowly and deeply. You'd hold your breath for 10 seconds or as long as possible. You would exhale slowly and then wait two minutes and repeat. And the reason that you wait two minutes is because as your bronchioles are dilating, they're going to be have more surface area to absorb the drug. So by waiting two minutes, you're able to absorb more of that medication. Now we have prednisone, which is our oral glucocorticoid, and we also have inhaled glucocorticoids. So both of these are going to be anti-inflammatory, and they're the first-line controller asthma drug. They are the most effective. So the mechanism of action, these drugs are going to be decreasing the synthesis and release of inflammatory mediators, decreasing immune cell activity, decreasing vascular permeability, and thus decreasing edema. 
They also decrease bronchial hyperreactivity and decrease mucus production. They increase the number of beta-2 receptors and increase their responsiveness to medications. So pretty significant. Um, you would be using these glucocorticoids for a consistent fixed dose prophylaxis. They are not rescue drugs. They are controller drugs. Some oral adverse effects. It does cause adrenal suppression, so you'd want to make sure you tapered it really slowly at the end of dosage and make sure they were on the minimum dose for the minimum amount of time. Um, other side adverse effects orally would include cataracts, glaucoma, bone loss, and decreased growth in children, though that is a transient effect. Regarding inhaled glucocorticoids, they would not be reaching systemic circulation the same way since they don't need to be metabolized by the liver. The major risk here is oral candida infections and dysphonia, so you'd want to make sure you use a spacer if possible and gargle afterwards, potentially even brush your teeth to remove that excess glucocorticoid. We have Montlucast. Montlucast. It's a leukotriene receptor blocker. This would be our second line asthma controller drug. So it's going to decrease bronchoconstriction, eosinophil infiltration, mucus production, and edema. Once again, it's only for chronic symptoms. So this is a controller drug. It does have minimal side effects. We have omalizumab. Omalizumab. <laughs> it's an IgE antagonist monoclonal antibody. So this drug is only for allergy-related asthma. So this would be for people who have asthma caused by allergies and their symptoms were not controlled by glucocorticoids and leukotriene modifiers, which are the first and second line drugs. This drug is really unique in that it binds free IgE in the blood and it would be given via weekly subcutaneous injection. Salmeterol is a long-acting beta agonist, ALABA. It is a controller medication for COPD and asthma. It's important to know that in asthma, you have to combine it with a glucocorticoid. It has a black box warning. It's deadly if given to asthma patients without a glucocorticoid. Um, you can also use it for COPD, so lots of big use. Other adverse effects via inhalation, you could have tachycardia, angina, and tremors, and orally you could have more severe adverse effects, including angina, tachydysrhythmias, and tremors once again. So poor compliance is relatively common due to those severe adverse effects. And once again, salmeterol, LABA, must have glucocorticoid if you're giving it to asthma patients. Ipratropium is a short-acting muscarinic antagonist, so a SAMA. This is only used for COPD. It reduces bronchoconstriction less effective than Saba's. And the big thing to know here is you would not use it if the patient had a peanut allergy. Ipratropium, no peanut allergies. For teotropium, this is a llama, a long-acting muscarinic antagonist. It's also only used for COPD for maintenance. If it's long-acting, it has a 24-hour duration and it's going to reduce bronchoconstriction. We also have fluticasone and salmeterol combined into Advair. This is a combination of glucocorticoid and a LABA. This is going to be a second line asthma controller drug. So the first line would be just glucocorticoid. You would not use this to initiate therapy for asthma. Once again, just use the glucocorticoid, then you can try this combination glucocorticoid and LABA. So for that controller long-term maintenance. Theophylline is a mexylxanthine. So it's a bronchodilator. It relaxes bronchi smooth muscle to cause bronchodilation. The important thing to know here, it has an extremely narrow therapeutic range, 10 to 20 micrograms per milliliter, and it's toxic above 25 micrograms per milliliter, at which point you'd have adverse effects of nausea, vomiting, cardiac stimulation, vasodilation, diuresis, tremors, and anxiety. Theophylline, 
very narrow therapeutic range. The levels are also increased by cimetidine, which is a drug for um, gastric problems like gastric ulcers and GERD, and also antibiotics, so it's really important to know. Okay, last module, module 9, we have oxybutynin, which is a muscarinic antagonist, so it's an anticholinergic drug that's used for overactive bladder. It inhibits bladder contractions and the urge decreases the urge to void. So you have all of the classic anticholinergic adverse effects, including dry mouth, dry eyes, blurred vision, mydriasis, tachycardia, and sedation. Sildenafil, sildenafil is also known as Viagra. It's a PDE5 inhibitor, so this is going to be our erectile dysfunction drug. It enhances erectile response to sexual stimuli. The effects are going to peak one hour after administration and absorb slower with a high-fat meal. It should be completely metabolized within four hours. So some adverse effects, hypotension. You will have profound hypotension if you take it with nitrates or alpha blockers. So if it's an alpha blocker, you should be really cautious. That's used. Those are generally used for um, BPH. And if it's a nitrate, it's absolutely contraindicated. You cannot give nitrates and sildenafil. Viagra. You can also have priapism. You'd want to seek medical attention for priapism over four hours, and over 24 hours, you can have really serious permanent damage. Other adverse effects, vision changes and vision loss, hearing loss, headache, dizziness, and nasal congestion. Finasteride is a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. This is going to block the enzyme that activates testosterone in the prostate. So it's used for mechanical obstruction. So that's when you have an overgrowth of prostatic epithelial tissue so you have a large prostate finasteride large prostate so it's used for bph you're going to have to take it for about six to twelve months to see that really significant shrinkage that improves symptoms in urination of note it does decrease the incidence of low-grade prostate cancer but it increases high grade so patients on finasteride are going to have negative or low psa levels but that wouldn't necessarily rule out a high-grade prostate cancer so that's really important to remember um, adverse effects, you could have decreased ejaculate, decreased libido, and gynecomastia. Also important to remember, it's teratogenic to male fetuses, so pregnant women should not handle this drug, and they also, patients taking this drug should not be donating blood because it could go to a pregnant woman, pregnant with a male fetus, and cause major problems. Timsilosin is an alpha adrenergic antagonist, so this is also used for BPH, but this is used for dynamic obstruction, so that's an overgrowth of smooth muscle. So the prostate is a normal size, you have smooth muscle overgrowth, tamsulosin, also known as Flomax. So it's going to relax the smooth muscle at the bladder neck, prostate capsule, and prostatic urethra. causes rapid symptom relief. Adverse effects include vasodilation and hypotension. So similar to our other drugs, it's contraindicated when patients are taking blood pressure medications, nitrates, sildafinil, or other erectile dysfunction drugs. Finally, we have N-acetylcysteine. This is a vasodilator and antioxidant. It's also known as mucomist. So it's going to be given with contrast to prevent renal damage. It's used for patients that are at high risk of having contrast-induced renal problems, so patients with diabetes, sepsis, vascular, renal, hepatic diseases, and maybe are taking other nephrotoxic drugs. And it creates a 50% reduction in AKI, so really impressive there. That's all for the drugs. Okay, so moving on to insulin and drug that you would use for diabetes. So explain the normal physiology of insulin. So pro-insulin is secreted by the beta 
islet cells of the pancreas. And we have that C-peptide loop in pro-insulin that's going to connect the A chain and the B chain of insulin. So C-peptide is going to be cleaved and that will form insulin. And one really helpful thing with this, if C-peptide is present in the body, we know that the patient does not have type 1 diabetes since that would indicate that the body is producing insulin. And the general way that insulin is secreted, you're going to have about 20 to 40 units secreted daily in a natural system. Um, you're going to have basal insulin secreted all day long, and the body will release bolus insulin with meals to help um, bring down that blood glucose after carb digestion. So when you're giving insulin to a patient, you want it to mimic natural secretion. So you'll have the basal long-acting insulin kind of going throughout the entire day and overnight and rapid-acting insulin following meals. Describe the use of basal and bolus insulin by using an insulin pump and subcutaneous medications. So an insulin pump can only use short-acting insulins and you can only have one type of insulin in there at a time. Um, using bolus insulin allows really tight control of the blood glucose, especially through infusion pumps, and the basal rate can be adjusted with boluses being calculated based on carbs. Describe the types of insulin and how these classes of medications control blood sugars. So we have short duration, and this includes both rapid acting and slower acting. Rapid acting is going to be quicker acting, of course, and it's also more expensive. Slow acting is sometimes the only option patients' insurance covers, but it is slower. So we have our rapid acting. So this is going to be given with meals about 5 to 10 minutes before the patient eats. It has an onset of 10 to 15 minutes, a peak 1.1 to 1.5 hours after um, giving it, and then a duration of 3 to 5 hours. So it could be given subcutaneously via pump or via IV. It is a clear preparation, and our drugs here are Humalog and Novolog. So I kind of remember this as logging the shortest amount of hours possible. You don't feel like working. We also have slower acting. So these are also going to be given with meals, but the onset is 30 to 40 minutes after administration. The peak is 2 to 3 hours, and duration is about 6 and a half hours. This could be given subcutaneously through pump, IM, or IV. And our two here are both going to be R. So Humalin R and Novolin R. And I kind of think of that as ready. They're ready to be administered. We also have our long-acting insulin. So we have intermediate-acting, long-duration, and ultra-long-duration. So the intermediate-acting are given twice daily to control blood glucose between meals and at night. So they have an onset of 1 to 3 hours, peak 5 to 8 hours, and duration of 14 to 18 hours. So they contain a substance called NPH. This is going to be slowing absorption. So it can only be given subcutaneously. It could never be given IV because that would completely prevent the effects of NPH and slowing that absorption. And so it would be faster acting and could really drop the blood pressure or blood sugar extremely quickly. So our two um, NPH intermediate acting insulins, Novolin N and Humulin N. I would just remember that the N, I think of it as not now, NN and not now. And this is a cloudy preparation. We also have long duration. So this is going to be an analog, which is a modified form of human insulin that's intended to prolong its action. So we have Lantus and Levomir, and I think LL long duration. They're the only ones that start with L as far as our insulins. So 
Atlantis has an onset one to two hours. It has no peak at all, and it has a duration of 22 to 24 hours. Levemir has an onset of one to two hours, a peak of eight to 10 hours, and duration 12 to 24 hours. These drugs are usually given at night, but it could vary. It's only subcutaneous. Once again, we're not mixing it and not giving an IV. It is a clear preparation. We finally have our ultra long duration. So we have Traceba and Trujuro. So they have onsets about 60 to 90 minutes. They do not have a peak and they both have durations over 24 hours. And these are going to be extremely effective at mimicking the body's natural basal insulin. We also have combination insulin, and this is only going to be used for people with stable conditions. So the preparations are pre-mixed, so you have a certain amount of shorter acting and a certain amount of longer acting. And so since you can't alter the dosage of the short acting to kind of bolus it if you had a high carb meal or something, it would only be for people with stable conditions. There are are different concentrations available, and the big benefit here is that it eliminates the need for multiple injections, and this is also only sub-Q. Explain how to mix R and N insulin. So if we remember R stands for ready, so you're gonna that's gonna be the rapid acting. And N stands for not now. So the order that you want to do, cloudy, clear, clear, cloudy. So you're gonna inject the air into cloudy first and then inject your air into clear, withdraw the medication from clear, and then withdraw the medication from cloudy. So you must always draw up the clear slash R insulin before drawing up the cloudy slash N insulin. So you have that protamine in the N insulin. And if that cloudy protamine entered the clear, it would slow the absorption of the insulin and affect the onset and duration of action. So we don't want to do that. Whereas drawing the clear before cloudy does not affect the cloudy in any way. Okay, moving on to some of our medications, mostly for type 2. Describe the mechanism of action, side effects, and special special considerations of biguanides, sulfonylureas, TZDs, alpha-glucoside inhibitors, DPP-4 inhibitors, GLP agonists, amylin, and SGLT-2 cotransport inhibitors. So sulfonylureas are is secretagogue, so they're going to promote the secretion of insulin. We are currently using the second generation drug, which is glimepiride. It allows lower doses and decreased drug interactions compared to the first generation. So once again, the action is secretagogue, so it's going to promote the insulin secretion by the pancreas. Considerations if someone had sulfa allergies, that could be a problem, and you can kind of see that sulfa in the name, sulfonylurea. Um, An adverse effect is hypoglycemia, which is really the case for most insulins and diabetes medications. We also have our megalitinides, megalitinides and slash glinides. So these are also secretagogues. Our medication here is going to be natglinide. And the action, once again, they promote insulin secretion by the pancreas, results in a rapid insulin release, has a half-life of one and a half hours and duration of four hours. And the big consideration here, you do not want to mix natglinide with lopid, which is a type of fibrate, because it can increase the mechanism of action of both drugs. We also have our biguanides. So our example here is metformin. That's the prototype drug. It has a number of actions. So metformin decreases glucose production by the liver. 
it increases muscular glucose uptake and it decreases glucose absorption by the gut. So the liver is not making glucose, the muscles are taking up more glucose, and the intestines are not absorbing glucose the same. So it's preventing hyperglycemia in three ways. There is also a lower risk of hypoglycemia since it's not actively causing insulin release, it's just promoting the decrease of blood glucose in other ways. So some adverse effects, you could have really severe diarrhea, also nausea, vomiting, weight loss, and anorexia. B12 deficiency is somewhat common, so you want to make sure you're checking those levels at least once a year with metformin. Um, you can very rarely have lactic acidosis, which occurs when the drug inhibits mitochondrial lactic acid oxidation. So a couple of considerations for this drug, you want to use caution in patients with heart failure and renal impairment. So if someone has a GFR of 30 to 45, you would want to be cautious, but it could still be appropriate. If someone had a GFR less than 30, you would absolutely not be using it. That's a hard contraindication. Um, after a patient received contrast for a CT or other imaging, you'd want to withhold the medication for at least two days, check the creatinine, and you can restart again if it's normal, since it does kind of have that nephrotoxicity. And finally, you do not want to consume alcohol in this drug. It increases the risk of lactic acidosis. Metformin can also sometimes be used for the treatment of polycystic ovary syndrome. Our next class of drugs are the thiazolidinediones, also known as the glitazones or the TZDs. So our prototype here is pioglitazone. This drug makes cells more responsive to insulin, which decreases insulin resistance. So you'd only be using it in type 2 diabetes because you need to have that insulin present for the mechanism of action. Some adverse effects, you can have severe hypoglycemia in the presence of insulin, which makes sense. The cells are more responsive to it. You could also have severe fluid retention, and this is profound fluid retention. So you would not be using this for heart failure or kidney failure patients. You could also see bladder cancer, hepatotoxicity, and an increase in the mechanism of action of statins. So megalitonides interfere with lopid, and the TZDs interfere with statins. We also have the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, and our example here is acarbose. So the action, it's going to inhibit carbohydrate digestion and absorption and decrease that postprandial rise in glucose. So if you're not absorbing those carbs, you're not going to have that spike in blood glucose. It doesn't make sense. The adverse effects also make sense. If you're not digesting those carbs are remaining in your GI tract, so you're going to have severe flatulence, cramps, distension, and diarrhea, and those are pretty significant side effects. Next, we have the DPP-4 inhibitors, which are known as the glyptins, and our example here is cetagliptin, cetagliptin. So it, once again, inhibits DPP-4, which is the hormone that breaks down in cretins. So overall, it increases stimulation of insulin secretion, so that's, since that's what the incretins are promoting. It is going to also decrease the postprandial release of glucagon. It's generally well tolerated, but the adverse effects include pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer. The GLP-1 receptor agonists are eventide and liraglutide. So these are incretin mimetics that slow gastric emptying, stimulate insulin release, inhibit glucagon release, and suppress appetite. And so these particular drugs, you do have a risk of hypoglycemia and pancreatitis, 
and they can only be given subcutaneously. So it makes sense. GLP-1 is the receptor on the pancreas that's um, receiving those incretins. So if you have an incretin mimetic, it's going to stimulate the GLP-1 receptor. Okay, next we have amylin, synthetic amylin. This is going to be the drug pramilintide, and it kind of has amylin in there. So I think of it as like a tide of amylin entering the body. So this synthetic amylin is going to be slowing the glucose absorption of the small intestine, suppressing glucagon secretion, delaying gastric emptying to cause satiety. So all of those things that endogenous amylin would do already in your body. So some adverse effects, you could have severe hypoglycemia, nausea, slow intestinal motility, and weight loss. And our last class of diabetes medications are the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, and our drug here is empagliflozin. So this drug is going to prevent the reabsorption of glucose from the urine filtrate. So that's overall going to reduce the glucose that's returned to the blood and increase the amount of glucose that's excreted through the urine. And so I think it stands for the sodium glucose something transporter. So it's inhibiting that transport. And this is a highly, highly effective drug. It also decreases the risk of cardiovascular events. So there's talk about putting basically all patients with cardiovascular problems and diabetes on this drug. Some adverse effects. Um, you have a really high risk of female genital mycotic infections and severe UTI, which also makes sense. If you have a really high concentration of sugar excreted in the urine, this is going to feed bacterial growth and fungal growth. They love the sugar. It also causes an osmotic diuresis since you have that really high volume of sugar concentrated in the urine, so it's going to cause a dehydration, and it'll also result in sodium loss, which is perfect for patients who have heart failure or hypertension. And there is a risk of ketoacidosis with this drug as well. And then just one more detail about diabetes itself. If you're looking for the mechanism to diagnose diabetes, you're looking for a hemoglobin A1c greater than 6.5. So that would indicate diabetes. Um, if a patient had a fasting plasma glucose greater than 126 on two occasions, that would also in indicate diabetes. Um, a two-hour plasma glucose, so they give you glucose or like a very high concentrated sugar and then they check your glucose after two hours. If that were over 200, that would indicate diabetes. And also just any random plasma glucose check that is over 200 would be diabetes.